Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, I am finally joined by my wonderful co-host Arun, along with two special guests from White Saint, Afshan Dadan and Sanjeev Kumar. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks to you. Thank you so much for joining us. I am super, super, super excited. As I mentioned earlier before the show start, um, I've been a fan of you guys. So, and I have no doubt the people who followed us have seen your wonderful and insightful reports. Before you, we dive in, though, can you tell us a little bit about White Sight and what prompted you to start the company, Sanjeev? I noticed that um, we also shared a common path somewhere along the way, all the way back in 2007. So, where were you and how do you end up where you are and how did the two of you meet and why start the company? Absolutely. Pleasure to be on the platform with you and Arun Theo. And uh, just to, uh, you know, address your digging capabilities. I mean, I was surprised that you dug out our shared history uh, of working at Amdocs. And that happened to be my first job after engineering. And uh, I had a fantastic tenure at Amdocs. A significant portion of my time there was actually spent in Israel. Uh, which remains one of my favorite countries even till today. And, you know, you look at their history, their approach to technology, the people, the culture, it, it really stands out. So so glad that you dug that up. Uh, coming to Whiteside, so Whiteside is a research firm that we have set up to primarily focus on bringing insights about the white space opportunities uh, that exist in the fintech space. And we also tend to look at how the firms are leveraging uh, either technology or business model uh, to unlock value in those white spaces. Uh, and what, what, what I mean by white spaces is it could be anything, right? It could be a product white space. It could be a pricing model white space. It could be a segment white space that, that the companies are going after. Uh, and then we tend to look at the initial wedge that the startups deploy to attack the market. And we tend to track the evolution of that wedge over a period of time to how to track how these startups are reaching their goals, whether it is customer acquisition goals, valuation goals, profitability goals, et cetera. So that's the primary aim around which we have set up the company. And in terms of uh, when we started, we, we also looked at the white space opportunity for, for ourselves as a research company, right? So we didn't want to create a data platform uh, because there are already quite a few of them and pretty good ones uh, that collate everything that happens in fintech and then they create and sell lists uh, that tell, tells us what's happening either in terms of startups being founded, raising funds, getting acquired, etc. We also didn't want to create a media platform. Uh, there are many of those already to join the chorus of hyping up the fintech segment or ranting down the fintech segment you, the way you look at it. So what we ended up doing is creating a data-led intelligence platform that can aid decision makers uh, in making specific decisions around, let's say, product strategy, competitive benchmarking, partnership playbook, et cetera. So that's the primary aim of what we are doing at Whiteside. And, uh, you know, uh, in terms of what prompted us in starting Whiteside, I have two main things to, to share with you. Uh, one was more of a professional insight. 
which I got at my previous company. So before starting Whiteside, I was working at PwC FinTech strategy team. And, uh, you know, it so happened that there were a lot of prospects and client interaction that were happening, uh, which, which had s several limitations in serving them, right? Whether, because the moment you work for a big four, uh, there's several constraints in the way you can work for a client, whether it is ticket size, maturity, geography of the client, size of the client and whatnot, right? So that there was a definite white space, which uh, the, the bigger firms um, were not serving. Um, and the other insight that I had was more about working with Afshan, right? So it was more like an interpersonal insight that we, we unearthed while we were working together. Uh, so she was a student at Bombay Stock Exchange and I was taking a FinTech course there and that's how we ended up meeting. And uh, what I realized uh, talking and working with her was uh, a lot of her skill sets, her beliefs, her motivations uh, were contrary to mine, but in most cases they were complementary. Uh, so just to give you some examples, uh, she's, you know, very much a creative person. I'm a quantitative person. Uh, she prefers to have a four-day work week at Whiteside. I am more like pushing people to do five-and-a-half-day work week at Whiteside. So that level of complementarity is something that I enjoyed, and I thought we could create mutual value together. I, I I love that part a lot, and and I can't help but but laugh because when you talk about you wanted to you you like to work five and a half days or perhaps even more, I can't help but to think about going back to your first comment, which you say you enjoyed working in MDocs. Well, that was exactly what our company was. If you can work five and a half days, and the question is, do you want to work six? If you can do six, then they'll be like, can you do seven? Um, but it, it, that brought back a lot of beautiful and funny and painful memories. Um, I did learn to curse in Hebrew quite a few times from my <laughs> colleagues, I learned all the bad words. We had cold words for our projects. Um, one of which was called Balagan because it was just a complete mess. But regardless, I do agree with you. That was a lot you can learn from other countries, from their work ethics and culture and their approach to technology. And I, I think that's the beautiful thing, right? In the tech space, when you mentioned earlier, you're working with clients and it's just, there's always something to pick up. And it's always something to add to your arsenal of um, tools, I guess. Uh, that would be what I said. So let's go back to the work that you two are doing. Um, you have recently released a report on climate finance. Um, Arun, I know that one was one of your favorite as well. Uh, you've highlighted some players that sits in the intersection of climate tech and financial services. What are some particular regions um, in your research that you guys saw that are leading the charge there more so some than the others? So um, Theo, the, publish, uh, the study that we published very recently in collaboration with uh, NMD Plus and uh, they, Dave there is a very dear friend and partner over there. So it was a joy working with him as well. And we the aim was to focus uh, quite a bit on the B2B partnerships between um, you know financial institutions and the service providers who are 
uh, kind of enabling these offerings around climate tech like carbon calculators and uh, various uh, sustainability products for banks themselves. So um, with that in mind, we kind of looked at who were the players in the region and primarily what we came across were many of these companies again were Europe based and they were working with partners, you know, in that region itself. So in terms of region, I would say that is kind of the first mover uh, region globally. And I think a few reasons why that would be the case would be it's also kind of the epicenter of green finance because with the green bonds issuance and with um, you know enabling uh, legislations which are being uh, put out by the regulators there there's quite a lot of activity going on so and also building on the open banking developments and the maturity in that space um, all the players we studied um, were enabled by open banking and they were kind of offering that uh, as well to their um, clients so that kind of set up the stage, a very good stage, I would say, for all of these companies to work with the banks and, you know, enable these solutions. But uh, again, I would, I kind of question myself if it's um, just open banking in Europe, why not in other regions? You know, other regions have open ba uh, banking as well, market-driven open banking, which is much more advanced. And there's nothing stopping them really from providing these kind of solutions. So it's more of the, more of a question of uh, when. Will they go uh, go ahead and start this uh, rather than what's stopping them as well? There's I don't think there's anything really stopping them. Uh, it's just needing to take that. Um, I wouldn't even see a leap of faith, but more of that action and actually drive the change because uh, uh, that is what will at the end of the day, you know, bring about that uh, impact in the very um, grand scheme of things. Exception and um, this this is this topic is pretty close to my heart and uh, when we talk about bringing about change um, uh, I, I always refer to the book the third pillar by um, Raghuram Rajan right I, I have spoken about this multiple times uh, I think it's the community that matters the most of the three pillars um, we see that in finance how DeFi the community can can bring about the change in the way we do finance. Um, so one of the things I wanted to do a little bit of a cheap PR about is that uh, my second book was supposed to be uh, called Conscious Consumer, and it was supposed to be talking about the nexus between fintech and climate change. And unfortunately, that proposal that I, I shared with several publishers didn't take off. They just didn't think it was, uh, uh, it, it had the reader base, unfortunately. I, I hope that changes in the near future. And uh, some of the companies, uh, Kogo, Enfuse, the economy that you mentioned in your report, are organizations I have reached out to for interviews for my book. So it was it just kind of um, uh, hit a card there when when I when I went through your report. Uh, and an, an amazing entrepreneur there. Now, just looking at the going back to the community angle and consumer financial services, consumer fintech, what are the things that can happen over the course of the next five ten years? I mean, I can think of so many different possibilities. What do you think can happen? And how will, how, why, where do you see the industry going? Who are the key players there? Um, so I think uh, one thing that definitely needs to happen is moving on from that very um, superficial level that we are at right now. Because most of the cases you see, you know, it's just, okay, you do this, you spend this much and we'll plant a tree for you. Or we'll uh, do 
some sort of a uh, donation or something like that it needs to be more um, i would say um, you know close to people's heart something that actually brings about a change and not just something superficial and it also needs to be uh, more localized in a way that people can actually see the impact happening um, in communities near them like uh, what i have seen in some cases is um, specifically like um, the super apps uh, in southeast asia like um, alipay alipay is definitely one example even gcash they've kind of introduced this um, green forest uh, initiatives of their own where it's like a gamified approach towards investing uh, green activities especially and that kind of encourages people to you know um, look at things more closely in and around them and actually drive that change starting from little things as paying your bills online or you know shopping at a vendor who is maybe a sustainable uh, provider or sourcer so those little things like localized impact and more close to your heart impact is something that will actually uh, you know start bringing about the gradual change and take this initiative which uh, can be very superficial in terms of the greenwashing happening and make it actually um, that much more ingrained in you know the daily financial lives of people like to think that that would be the case i just can't maybe it's just a cynical side of me i i see a lot of these happening um but it's like you know like you say afshan the the examples that we see you know alipay gcash um they're in the they're in the in the east right in in asia where a resources are a little bit more scarce in a lot of places and b they will be the ones that will feel the impact the most. Whereas when I start looking back closer to where I am in, in North America, where resources are way more abundant, although I would say it's not equally distributed, um, where the impact can be quite drastic, depends on the region where you are, we are already seeing changes in terms of insurance industry where you know some they would say that we're not insuring you anymore because there's just too many things that's happened um but we just don't seem to be able to have our act together right we look at climate change we look at the impact of climate crisis we look at carbon dioxide emission and there are all kinds of graphs one of the things that people like to say is data doesn't lie but is up to the interpretation of how you see the data and what story you draw upon. And so you'll see competing graphs, if you will, one set that shows, well, you know, the Indias and the Chinas of the world, they're the biggest emitter, and so they need to do the most. Another set of graphs will show, well, but there's a cumulative impact of carbon emission. And if you look at the cumulative impact to the environment, it's the more developed economies, the United States of the world and, and the rest that have done way more damage to our environment than a lot of the other developing economies. And henceforth, one would have thought that we would actually step up a little bit more and do more. Um, there are recent studies and, and a lot of talk from financial services industry and say, well, you know, we will commit to X. But the word greenwashing keeps popping in my head because we keep reading about assets that change the name but without changing the underlying asset class. And 
they don't change where they actually invest, they just change the name. Do you think we'll actually get somewhere that's meaningful? I love what you were saying about the localized um, action. I love what you're saying about creating something that brings real change. But a lot of these are more of the newer organizations. Whereas, what about the big giants? What are they doing? I think um, one way that could def uh, not definitely but should ideally uh, bring about that change would be um, the uh, the mandate from the top itself, like from uh, say the regulators or more of these international organizations that are kind of um, setting up um, say the rules or the policies for um, either disclosures or for um, you know climate risk uh, planning and all of that. So. Um, in such cases, if there's that pressure from the top coming in, maybe that would be one thing that could incentivize them to change. But uh, even I'm not sure um, how true that would be and how effective that would be. So it's I, I uh, kind of leave my hope up uh, to the Greta Thunbergs of the world to actually um, you know, uh, fight for it and to make people think about it and actually start implementing that change. That's the hope my generation has, at least. All right. Uh, I have a question for you, Sanjeev, because I know you've, you've been pretty close to um, several fintech use cases, particularly in emerging markets. And we've had this conversation in the past, particularly around embedded fintech and all that. And one of the things that that kind of uh, I'm that that um, that surprises me that the lack of penetration of a product like crop insurance, right? It's such an easy product to roll out. Of course, underwriting is a problem. Data is all out there, and we have so much technology that if we can do interstellar travel. We should be able to roll out um, crop insurance, right? Um, what are your experiences in that space? Can you share some of your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's something that uh, I was uh, researching a couple of weeks back, uh, especially what's happening in Vietnam and Philippines. So both these economies, the, the agriculture segment itself is one of the heaviest contributor to greenhouse gas emission. I mean, I was surprised to discover that, that it was like the second or third segment which was contributing the GHG in, in the Southeast Asian economies. And, uh, you know, there, there are several reasons for that, given the soil quality, the usage of fertilizers and, uh, you know, other non-sustainable way of farming there. But uh, the insurance thing that you mentioned, I mean, that's like one of the most important and, uh, as you said, should have been easier to deliver to this segments of population, which actually carries a lot of impact, not just for, for those vulnerable segments, but also for the economy as a whole. And that is where I, I see a lot of potential for a smart contracts-based solution to launch parametric insurance. And especially if you combine it with the oracles uh, to bring real-life data into the blockchain, which can uh, issue uh, insurance based on weather conditions, based on rain patterns, based on uh, any calamity that has happened in that particular part of the world. Uh, and there are a few, few players who are emerging with this kind of a product, but you're right. I mean, that is something that a lot of Asian markets 
uh, are in need of and uh, given the collaboration that we are seeing between the southeast asian economies and developed markets like uh, the uk the uh, australia canada a lot of startups especially in the agritech segment are being invited to work in southeast asia because they have already proven uh, a product that works in their part of the world and if they can bring that kind of a product proposition in in emerging markets uh the scale of the problem is much larger in these emerging markets and and uh, if the technology is a little mature having worked in developed market i, I feel uh, there's a lot of potential to quickly gain some ground and move the needle but absolutely on uh, you know uh, uh, i mean uh, it's amazing to see the the agriculture segment uh, um, even though it's one of the biggest contributor of gdps in the emerging markets they are not getting the attention uh, and and both from the innovators as well as the 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 venture funds so to say i mean uh, it's like i don't know not even in the top 10 uh, segments uh, that most vcs uh uh take part uh, participate in so so that's something that's definitely there and i'm hoping with embedded finance uh one of the key proposition of embedded finance is to have uh embed financial solutions in the journey of the customer rather than having it uh, offered individually from a third party so that's that sort of a uh, intersection uh, will enable a lot of innovative use cases and i'm sure that is something that i'm hoping blockchain can deliver real life value uh, rather than just delivering nfts and and other things that we keep talking about oh, absolutely i i actually wrote about uh blockchain driven crop insurance on daily fintech in 2017 or 18 um, oh. and still nobody has managed to do it properly at scale Uh, recently, I spoke to a firm called Birds Eye View. They're a UK-based firm. They are gathering geospatial data to to help under and uh, for to underwrite parametric uh, insurance. But the challenge still remains: what is the distribution and uh, distribution methodology? Right, you can't just go to a farmer and sell them crop insurance. They're not going to buy it. You've got to kind of package it up with your agri products. So you use these seeds, and this is the cost of the seed is like say five rupees, and if you if you want some kind of guarantees for your uh, income we'll charge you 7 rupees or something like that packaged into the into the products is is going to go a long way and that is something that uh, that that uh, they are deliberating doing across africa and asia uh, so i mean this is this is definitely a space uh, that will that will makes that that makes life a lot more meaningful for farmers uh, it's such an important space Agree, um, Sanjeev. There, one of the uh, one of the firms that we highlighted in our book, Beyond Good, is called Flourish Ventures, and in yeah. that they have funded a few agritech startups that seem to be doing quite well in in the regions, like what Arun said in Africa, um, helping the farmers with the seed and the crop yield. But I agree, much needs to be done, and I I like what you. Decides that you know the scale of the problem is so much larger in in emerging economies, but it also means that if we can find them saying something that is scalable and works, then the benefit of it will also be that much larger, right? That the ROI is there. It's not just 
from a business perspective, but it's for human survival. It's for yeah. the entire human race. And, you know, there is more to just pure profits on the Wall Street and uh, creating cute monkey um, avatars. Um, you did take me by surprise when, when you changed your avatar to, to the monkey, and I didn't notice that you changed your background too. So I think we might need a whole separate uh, session when we wrap up the year ends to ask you exactly what your thoughts are behind NFT and all that. I'll, I'll need Brad on that call. I don't want to be uh, <laughs> just doing it with you. Oh, come on. We are <laughs> friends. Um, so before we wrap up, I, I want to ask both of you, uh, Sanjeev and, and Afshan, what if you were to pick two things that you think you will see, two top trends, if you will, because you know that's what people do, you know, end of the year and beginning of the year. What are your two top picks? Ladies first. Um, I I may have to go with um, maybe saying more of uh, what I'm seeing is fintechs uh, coming up as supporters for um, the traditional financial institutions maybe. So fintech as enablers is definitely a stronger trend which I'm seeing. Previously it was more of, uh, you could say, financial institutions enabling fintechs when it started out, but kind of uh, now with fintechs gaining the bulk and gaining that credibility, that kind of shift is happening where fintechs can also be um, the back-end suppliers for uh, traditional institutions. And uh, I am kind of right now in uh, a phase where I am learning more about Web3 and understanding how it works and all of that. <laughs> so I would say that is definitely a growing trend and something, if if not uh, completely a bubble, it will still kind of expand quite a bit and uh, gain more people's attention. So I'm I'm definitely hoping to see a lot more happening in that space and also understanding and dipping my toes into it as well. Thank you. And Sanjeev, what do you think? So I think um, one is definitely more traction towards super apps in developed markets. And what I mean by super apps is not the, uh, you know, China's way of including everything which may or may not be related to your core business. I mean, more like expanding propositions on your core business. So, you know, we were having a debate with a couple of folks from the industry a few weeks back on Klarna's uh, approach to becoming super app. And what I argued was, you know, they're not trying to become super app. They're trying to become a shopper app. It doesn't matter whether it's a, it includes your pre-purchase journey, your during purchase journey or your post purchase journey. So if you look at the, 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 the slew of acquisitions that they have done, either it is towards cashbacks, uh, loyalty, uh, towards price discovery, uh, towards managing uh, intervention and nudges to bring people to purchase on several e-commerce platform. They are not looking to launch a ride hailing plot platform or a grocery delivery platform, right? So I feel that kind of a super app proposition, which is still going to be bound uh, around the core proposition that the company stands for, uh, will gain ground. Uh, and the diversification will happen, but it will be around the customer journey uh, rather than uh, around unrelated businesses. Uh, the second thing is uh, similar to what Afshan mentioned, but I, I was I, I would probably bring it to the topic that we 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 have at hand, 
So I was thinking more like conscious consumption uh, through impact tokens. Uh, so so uh, a little bit of mouthful concept, but uh, you know I just think uh, impact tokens itself is a category uh, that will excite people to participate in the in, in conscious consumption behavioral models. Uh, that will reward them in real time uh, of their behavior changes, uh, and that way, I mean, uh, coming to the social, uh, the community angle that Arun mentioned, I still strongly believe uh, that in order to uh, for the country, for the for the world to become net zero, uh, that everyone is claiming to launch, some of us at individual levels as well as at organization levels have to become net negative. Because I don't believe, uh, you know, um, that every one of us uh, individuals or, or organizations will be able to achieve the net zero uh, uh, objective. So unless we to, we uh, become net negative uh, at individual levels and organization levels, the overall goal of net zero will be difficult to achieve. And that is where I, I, I see a lot of potential uh, in the way impact tokens can um, bring this to real life uh, both for consumers as well as enterprises i have to chip in there it sounds like a fascinating idea uh, decentralized finance where you have large organizations staking a percentage of their top line um, to kind of gamify uh, people's behavior towards sustainable habits right so that would be awesome if if, if that at all happens probably in the next bitcoin cycle not this one yeah, let's hope we destroy the planet before we get there. I, I would like for at least for the meantime, for consumers to have more visibility to our own carbon footprint, our own impact, right? When we go to a particular retailer, when we do certain things, every single decision impact the world somewhat. But right now it's all invisible. And so we have the tools, we have the data, we have the ability, like Arun say, we can put people on the moon, we can put people in space. People do it for leisure. They are planning trips, shooting themselves off to space just because they can. Well, I'm sure we can use a little bit of that innovation technology, a little bit of that money, a little bit, a few of those zeros to create tools to for, for consumers to understand where they stand, where we can actually make a difference because I know we can. And I know a lot of us want to. And so thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. And for those of you who are not following Sanjeev and Afshan's work, please to do so. You can find them on website.net or find them on LinkedIn or just download one of those reports. I'm sure you'll be a loyal fan after that. So thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today. Thank you for gracing us with your presence, Arun. Always a pleasure. We miss you on the show. Yes, you need to come back more often. Thanks for having me. Writing checks. <laughs> you can't say thanks for having you on your own show, my friend. <laughs> and for the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week.